Well, hello and welcome. This is unusual for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, we are here on a Sunday. It is uh, Sunday around 3.30 Eastern time. Uh, and of course, it may be all different times wherever you might be. Uh, so we don't usually do presentations on Sunday, but I've been wanting to do this presentation for the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint audience, and I thought, what better time than the present? So uh, we are doing a presentation today, and I guess I should restate that. I am giving a presentation today, so that's another reason that today is a little unusual. Uh, usually we have a guest presenting, uh, or we might be doing an interview or, or the other type of event, uh, but today you will actually have me sharing a presentation with you, and it's one that I've given to, I've given variations of this presentation to a few different audiences. Uh, and I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, well, gee, I haven't really given this presentation to our Alliance audience, and I, I've adjust, made some adjustments, but I think that this could be really helpful to people out there that, you know, whether you're your parents of children that are going through this, or you're a self-advocate that's been through this and, and interested in impacting change, or you're a teacher or a paraprofessional or a school administrator, I think today's presentation could be helpful for lots of different kinds of people understanding the issue of restraint and seclusion, and also understanding how we can do better and how we must do better to end the uh, the cycle of trauma that follows it. So I'm going to go ahead and bring up a presentation on screen here, and we will get started here shortly. Uh, I will say, oh, I see that uh, my friend Gail from Australia is here, and Gail is not only a friend, but also a member of our Alliance team, and she is in Australia at 6.30 in the morning. So good morning, Gail. I hope you have some coffee. Uh, I also see Jennifer, uh, uh, Mina, that you're here as well, and always great to see you. Uh, I will say, since I'm going to be presenting this morning, this afternoon, whatever time it may be, wherever you are, uh, it's a little challenging for, for me to watch all the comments as they come through, but I'll do my best, and I do plan to... Uh, as always, record this, and it will be available on Facebook, YouTube, uh, as an audio podcast. So it will be available after the fact. And one of the things I really want to encourage you to think about is who you might share this with. You know, if you're a parent, is this something that you could share with your your teacher or your board of education or superintendent? Uh, if you're a teacher, is this something you want to share with others that are interested in in change? So really, the uh, the hope here um, is to um, you know, really offer something that can help a lot of different people. I see somebody else here in Australia as well. And Mina, I'm sorry. Um, I would say it's early in the morning, but it's not for me. Uh, but I, I apologize about the mispronunciation. So with that, um, you know who I am, and I'm going to introduce myself a little bit more in the presentation. So why don't we go ahead and get started and bear with me here as I kind of go over to both screens here. Uh, so the topic today is restraint seclusion ending the school-based trauma cycle. And that's an important um, distinction to make here. You know, kids may have trauma from all sorts of sources, but uh, really what we're talking about with restraint and seclusion can be leading to trauma for kids in a school setting. And it's really important to recognize that. So a little bit about me, and I think many of you may know who I am, but my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of a group called the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, the group that we're here presenting for today. Uh, first and foremost, though, I'm a dad, and that's really what got me involved in, in doing this work. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I do have this strong belief that we can do better for our students, our teachers, and our staff uh, in schools while reducing and eliminating practices like restraint and seclusion. And of course, I believe if we can do better that we have an obligation to do so. So uh, a little bit about me, and I'm gonna make it very light on me. I know a number of folks that might be watching this might know more about my story or you might not. Uh, I'm a father in Maryland, uh, in the United States. 
Uh, I have two amazing kids. I have a daughter, Audrey, and my son, Cooper. Uh, my son, Cooper, is now 16. Uh, in fact, this morning, I spent the morning on the beach with him sawing logs because he wanted to do a beach cleanup. He loves being outside. He loves nature. He's a great kid. Uh, he's autistic and also has ADHD and, as a result, needed some more help along the way in school. Unfortunately, we had experiences uh, first in the first grade, then in the fifth grade, then again in the eighth grade with restrained seclusion. Uh, the first times it happened, uh, the school never used the words restrained seclusion. They said there was a, a safety issue and here's what happened. But clearly what happened was my son was restrained. My son was secluded. Um, and I set out to learn more about what was happening. Uh, but I also set out with a promise to him. And that promise that I made to my son was that after it happened and I knew what was happening, I made a promise to him that I would do anything I could to make sure it didn't happen to him again or other kids like him. And, and that really is what led me down this road of doing a lot of research and trying to understand who's being restrained and secluded? What's the impact of restraint seclusion? What are the better things that we can be doing instead of restraining and secluding uh, children? So uh, that's a little bit about kind of what got my journey started here. Uh, I've, about three years ago, a little less than three years ago, I formed a group called the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. And, and that started because I've been doing a lot of research on restraint and seclusion. And I thought, well, gee, if this information is helpful to me, perhaps it'll be helpful to others. Uh, in my advocacy journey, I initially began trying to affect change locally uh, in our school district. And although it was not an easy task, uh, we were able to uh, bring some parents together, bring some staff together from the school uh, and the Board of Education. And we were ultimately able to change the school system's policy and practice regard related to restraint seclusion. And it had a very positive impact. But as I was doing this research, I thought, well, this could be helpful to other people. And, and the mission began to grow. Uh, I really wanted people that were going through this, no matter what side you, you might be on of this, whether you're a, a parent or an educator or even a self-advocate that's been down this road, uh, I wanted people to know that they weren't alone and that they can do things to influence change. So the Alliance started to really raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion. Uh, while I'll say to you today that you know, our origins were really based on what was happening in schools. Uh, I will say that we care very much about the use of restraint seclusion that may be happening anywhere, whether it's a medical setting, a, um, um, a mental health setting, a um, troubled teen. Uh, you know, the troubled teen industry is, is very full of uh, instances of uh, restraint and seclusion. But we're also seeing other kinds of abuses, whether it's in schools, restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, uh, things that can be leading kids really down the wrong road, uh, down the road to uh, mental health difficulties, down the road to the school to prison pipeline. And again, all this is about the fact that we can be doing better. And if we can be doing better, we need to do better. So the mission of the Alliance is really about connecting people together. We want to connect people together who are dedicated to really changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that practices like restraint seclusion can be reduced and eliminated uh, in schools across the nation and beyond. And again, I would just caveat that and say, we don't want to see these things happening anywhere. Uh, anywhere these things are happening can really be troubling. And of course, all of these things happen in the name of behavior, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go through the day. Uh, but all of these things are, are things that are being done to children and youth uh, in the name of behavior and having really negative consequences. 
So we now are a global community. And, you know, as I, um, you know, updated this presentation, we've actually passed this number now. We have well over 15,000 people that are following us on social media. We've got parents of kids that have been restrained and secluded. We've got self-advocates, autistic self-advocates that are part of our community. We have educators that, that want to do better, administrators, paraprofessionals, attorneys, advocates, all sorts of people. And, and the idea here is that we're coming together to try to figure out what we can do to reduce and eliminate these practices. Um, we have a team of about 17 volunteers now. This fall, we were fortunate enough to get two amazing interns that are helping us out as well. And they're working on a really fantastic project that you're gonna hear more about later uh, to develop model state level legislation. So uh, we've, got a, we've got a good team and it's been growing. Uh, I never, I always tell people, I never kind of uh, had this, um, fork in my my path in terms of a, a plan. I never planned to become a, a civil rights advocate for children. It kind of happened. And, and, you know, once I understood what was happening, I couldn't just move forward without doing something about it, knowing the kids whose lives are literally hanging in the balance. Um, so, you know, these things are sometimes not what we plan to do, but what we need to do. Uh, and I'm glad I have, and I've met a lot of amazing people through this work. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those people today as well. So I do want to kind of frame this conversation. Um, you know, I think that in the great scheme of things, I, I really hope sincerely that we all want safer schools for the students, the teachers, and the staff. I don't think anyone wants to see a student or a member of staff injured. Um, you know, and, you know, no one, well, let me re rephrase that. I, I would say that it is very rare that there's somebody out there that might want to restrain or seclude a child. I think very often it's a matter of training and culture. People believe they need to do certain things to keep themselves safe and students safe. Not to say that there are never bad players out there. That's true of any, any, anywhere in the world that you might look. Uh, there are always some out there. But I think by and large that, that people uh, are restrained, including kids, because they sometimes don't know what else to do. And it's sometimes how they're trained and what the culture might be in the schools that they're working in. Um, so again, back to this idea, the conversation is about how can we discover what we can do better? How can we discover how we can reduce and eliminate these practices? And then once we know better, what can we do to make sure that we're putting that into effect? So I'm going to begin the conversation today by just getting us all on the same page in terms of definitions, uh, because I'll be honest with you, when I first heard the words restraint and seclusion in the context of a school, it was almost unbelievable to me. I couldn't really even imagine that kids might be physically restrained or secluded inside of a school. Um, so it was hard for me to first kind of work that into my mind that that might be something that could happen to a child in a school setting. So let's talk about, just to get a baseline here, a couple definitions. When I'm talking about physical restraint, really what I'm talking about is some kind of personal restriction, some kind of way of immobilizing a child or youth uh, so that they no longer can move freely. Um, so this might affect their ability to move their, their arms, their legs, their head, their torso freely. Um, it does not mean a physical escort. Now, a physical escort is not necessarily a, um, uh, you know, a rough action. A physical escort should really be a temporary touching or holding of the hand, uh, something that not necessarily the child is, is fighting against. Uh, and that's really for the purpose of helping them get somewhere else. But a restraint can look very much like what you might imagine. Uh, you've no doubt seen people being restrained in, in other settings, whether it be law enforcement or uh, others. And a restraint is very much 
what that might look like. And it can it can look differently. And I'll talk about some of the different kinds of restraints that are out there. Um, there are what we refer to as standing restraints. Uh, that might be kind of a simple hold. And you can see here the illustration that we have an adult kind of crossing the arms across a child uh, and just holding the child there from behind. Uh, we have also what we refer to as seated restraints. Uh, a seated restraint is when one or more adult might, um, you know, kind of use their body to kind of assist the child or, or force a child to a, a seated position. There, of course, are supine restraints. And a supine restraint, as you watch this illustration, uh, it begins with what's called a takedown. And, and yes, that's what I said. I said a takedown. A takedown meaning that staff will take a child down to the ground. And from there, with a supine restraint, they will restrain them in a uh, face-up position for supine. But it is something that's pretty, pretty intense. Uh, there's also what's called a prone restraint. And a prone restraint is very much like a supine. It begins with that takedown. And ultimately, what we see is the student in that case is actually held in a face-down position. Uh, one of the issues, of course, with uh, the use of prone restraint is that it can restrict breathing. It can pressure uh, on the um, on, on the lungs. It can cause what they call positional asphyxia, which means that due to the position the child's in, that they may stop breathing. And this is just, isn't just limited to kids. Uh, you you no doubt have heard stories about um, you know people that have been unable to breathe, have said they've been unable to breathe, and have died as a result of being put in restraints, like a prone restraint. Now, prone restraint is not legal in all states. I think it's about thirty to thirty two have ban the practice of prone restraint, but certainly not all. There are a lot of states out there that still do allow the use of prone restraint, despite the knowledge that's out there about it. There are other forms of restraint as well, and while I won't go into these quite as deeply, I want you to be aware of them. Uh, there are chemical restraints. In some schools and facilities, uh, this can mean a, a drug or medication that's used on a student to kind of reduce their, their movement or restrict their movement. Uh, this often means not something prescribed by a licensed physician, but rather the, um, you know, the facility within the staff. Uh, many states have put prohibitions on the use of chemical restraint, uh, but there are states that have not. Uh, so it's something to be aware of. And there are also what are called mechanical restraints. And you can probably gauge here uh, from the photograph uh, of duct tape that, yes, kids have been taped to desks. Kids have been taped to trees. Uh, a mechanical restraint is using some kind of device to restrict a, a student's ability to move. Um, students have been uh, forced into uh, certain devices that are that are meant for medical conditions, uh, but rather used to restrain them. Uh, so it can be a lot of different things. It can be tape. It can be rope. It can be tying people to furniture. Uh, and if this seems outrageous to you, it has happened. Uh, I would not be talking about this if it was not something that had happened. So there are stories out there about these kinds of things happening to kids in schools, in uh, behavioral programs, in mental health settings. Um, and of course, you know, it's easy to kind of go, wow, no, I can't imagine. They've happened. So, you know, that is what we're talking about when we talk about restraint. We're talking about physical mechanical and chemical restraint. Let me talk now a little bit about seclusion. I would say that seclusion is a little more commonly misunderstood. Um, and in terms of seclusion, seclusion is when you take someone and involuntarily put them in a space or area by themselves and prohibit them from leaving. So in the context of a school, there are schools that have quiet rooms, calm rooms, cool down rooms, different rooms that they will put a student in 
and again, this is involuntarily, so they may be restrained before they're put into a seclusion space, they will put them in this room and they will prevent them from leaving. Uh, now, this doesn't include a, a timeout, which might involve, you know, staff being with a child. Um, but this, and it doesn't even cover exclusion, which may be a child is put in a room where they're working by themselves, but there's an adult that is offering, you know, this is actually kind of a forced separation. Now, I'm not saying that those other things are, are good, uh, but I just want to make the distinction when we talk about seclusion, they're put in there by force, they're refused the ability to leave, uh, and they're alone. So to, to clarify, seclusion is not necessarily a sensory room. And when I say sensory room, I mean a true sensory room, a place where uh, kids might go to uh, help them if they're feeling either overstimulated or need to, some sensory stimulation. It's not a self-directed timeout. So if there's a quiet space um, and your student you know, or your child sometimes needs a quiet space uh, because they're feeling overwhelmed, that's not seclusion. If they go there voluntarily and they're not being forced there against their will, that's not seclusion. Uh, in fact, some kids will need that from time to time. They will need to take a break. Uh, and of course, it's not a timeout, we said. Now, I want to be clear here that seclusion happens sometimes under many different names. So the names for seclusion rooms can really be can really be upsetting. Um, and I'll just share some examples here, but they're sometimes called things like reset rooms, cool down rooms, blue rooms, break rooms, quiet rooms, even sometimes mindfulness room when in fact it's not being used for mindfulness or sensory purposes, uh, resource room, tool room, safe room. Uh, those of you that are watching, if there's other things you've heard them call, feel free to put those in the chat as well. But we hear them called a lot of different things, but the name of a seclusion room doesn't change the function. If a child is put there, against their will and refuse the ability to leave, they are in seclusion. And you can see from these photos here, I mean, some of these spaces look really barbaric, uh, even to the point of building little, you know, uh, plywood boxes in classrooms uh, or makeshift uh, seclusion spaces. So, um, you know, this again can, you know, regardless of what it's called, if it's being used in that way, it is seclusion. Now, I wanted to find another term that's really meaningful to this discussion and really meaningful to me, and, and that's the term imminent serious physical harm. And the reason I say this is an important term is that you're going to find that certain state laws, federal guidance mention the idea of imminent serious physical harm, and they mention it as a criteria for thresh or threshold rather for using restraint or seclusion. Now, imminent serious physical harm actually has a legal definition. It's the same as serious bodily injury, which you can defi find defined many places in federal law as well as state law. Uh, it's defined in IDEA, the Individuals with Disability Education Act here in the United States. And what imminent serious physical harm means, it means a substantial risk of death, extreme physical pain, protracted and obvious disfigurement, or protracted loss or impairment of a function bodily member, organ, or mental faculty. Imminent serious physical harm is a very high standard, and it is often the standard of use that is recommended for the use of restrained seclusion. So again, what is imminent serious physical harm? Let me tell you what it's not. It's not something that should be done for noncompliance or disrespect, minor behaviors, bad language, uh, property damage, convenience, or a power struggle. Imminent serious physical harm is a high standard. It means a life or death situation. But very often we find, again, that restraint and seclusion are used for these far lesser standards. And it's important to understand that 
the reason this threshold is high is because the impact can be really high. So you don't want to use something that can really harm a child for something very minor. And what we find all too often is that despite the fact that there is a very high standard, that kids are restrained and secluded for reasons like my son splashing water. Uh, Cornelius Frederick threw a sandwich. Uh, he ended up dying after he was physically restrained. Kids that have turned lights off and on. Uh, kids taking their shoes off. Kids eloping out of the classroom. Uh, kids that are unable to communicate their needs. So uh, non-speaking children are more often um, restrained and secluded. Um, kids that were having an anxiety attack or refusing to take a break. You know, there's all sorts of reasons. Uh, kids that were crying, throwing a tantrum. Uh, not wanting to come in from recess, you know, singing in class. There's all sorts of things that might happen that really don't meet that imminent serious physical harm standard. And, and, and again, keep that in your mind as we talk through the today. Now, I want to move from defining the terms. So we know what restraint is. We know what physical restraint is. We know what seclusion is. And we know what imminent serious physical harm is. And I want to shift now into talking about the impact of restraint and seclusion. I want to begin by talking about who is impacted. Because as you look at the data, and there's data out there for us to look at uh, many times on state levels, but there's federal data as well. And that data begins to paint a picture of who is most often restrained and secluded. What do we find? We find that disproportionately children with disabilities are restrained and secluded. Disproportionately, black and brown children are restrained and secluded. We often find that it's very young children. So while people often have this mental image that it's a 15 or 16 year old who's, who's giving someone a hard time or having a fight, that's not what we're talking about here. We're very often talking about a five, six, seven year old, a child with a trauma history, a very young child um, that may be disabled, may be having a, a difficult time that's restrained and secluded. Children that are in more restrictive settings are more likely to be restrained and secluded. So if you move from a general education setting to a segregated or standalone classroom, you're more likely to be restrained and secluded. If you move from that segregated classroom to maybe a separate special education day school, you're more likely to be restrained and secluded. If you move to a private special education day school, you may be more likely to be restrained and secluded. If you move to a residential facility, you may be more likely to be restrained and secluded. We often find as well, kids that are most often restrained and secluded already have a trauma background. And many of these children, there, there's some intersectionality here between disability and, and trauma. And what we sometimes find is, is kids with disabilities may have suffered from trauma related to their disabilities. Imagine if you have communication differences. Imagine if you're non-speaking. Imagine if you're frustrated and trying to be understood and trying to have your needs met how traumatic that might be over time. So individuals that have a trauma history are unfortunately more likely to be restrained secluded. And as you see, if you begin to add these factors up, if you are disabled, you're black, you're very young, you've been through some trauma, you're more likely to be restrained and secluded. So this data, and, and it's not even just a little bit more likely, it, it's a lot more likely. So as we look at the data, what we actually find is if you look at all the restraints and all the seclusions, this is using federal data. It's the 2017-2018 data set from the Office of Civil Rights. What we find is that 80% of restraints are children with disabilities. 77% of seclusions, children with disabilities. 
This is not just disproportionate. This is a clear indication of a civil rights issue. When that high of a percentage of children with disabilities are being restrained and secluded, this is a clear indication that something is being done wrong and that the human and civil rights of children are being violated. So it's a huge issue when you look at it. Um, we can even kind of break down uh, disability. Uh, children that are autistic, more likely to be restrained and secluded. Children labeled with emotional disturbance. Um, and, and I have some concerns about that, that label. Um, and I think that children often end up with a label like that because their needs are not being well met. But uh, we also see children that fall under that category more likely to be restrained and secluded. So not only does it happen disproportionately to children with disabilities, if you begin to look at individual disabilities, you can see some real significant issues there as well. And of course, we often see it with black and brown students as well. If you look up the proportion of black students in the general population of our schools versus the amount of restrained seclusion, uh, and you can look at those red bars there, uh, we look at the total enrollment, uh, which is, I, I want to say, around 18%. Then you look at the restraint and the seclusion numbers. They're disproportionately high for, for black and brown students as well. So knowing who's restrained and secluded is, is helpful to, to understand the scope of the problem. But what was really helpful to me next was to understand, well, what's the impact of this? Uh, what's the impact of the use of restraint and seclusion? And, and at a high level, it's trauma, it's injury, and it's even death. Uh, you know, kids can die being put into physical restraints. Kids have died being put into seclusion rooms. So let's dig into each of those a little bit more. I want to begin with trauma because to me, that's a really interesting place to start. Um, I've learned more about trauma and the brain over the last few years than I ever would have thought that I would have uh, learned or need to learn. But as you begin to learn about trauma and the brain, you understand that there are certain areas of the brain that are impacted by traumatic stress. Uh, you know, the amygdala, the hippocampus, the prefrontal cortex. And we can actually see lasting changes in those areas of the brain. Now, if you think about the function of those areas, our amygdala is our threat detection system. Uh, it's a kind of our fight or flight response. Uh, when your amygdala becomes oversensitive, what might happen? Well, you might be more prone to detect danger, even, even potentially when there's not. And that can sometimes lead to stress-related behaviors. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, we also find that restraint seclusion is in and of itself, it's a traumatic event. Uh, just imagine for yourself being physically taken down to the ground by a couple of adults and held there and told to calm down, told you'd be released as soon as you calm down. Imagine the stress or imagine being thrown into a room against your will and having the door held shut. Imagine the panic that you might feel. Imagine the stress that you might feel in that situation. And we can find, of course, that this is an adverse childhood experience. So we often talk about, there was a study called the ACES study, which looked at adverse childhood experiences and the impact that those would have on adults even years down the road. Uh, the use of restraint and seclusion can certainly be uh, an adverse childhood experience and something that needs to be considered as we begin to think about trauma in our schools. What I really wanna focus on though, is understanding what I call the classroom trauma cycle. So if you begin with this knowledge that kids that may have already experienced restraint, or excuse me, kids that are more likely to be restrained and secluded may already have a trauma history. So we have kids that are more likely to have been traumatized. A child that has been traumatized, we know that there are changes that occur in the brain. Uh, 
And we know that those changes that occur in the brain can actually make our threat de detection system more sensitive. So that leads to what we would call hypervigilant. If any of you watching today, and I would bet that somebody out there watching today has had some traumatic stress in their life, someone has probably been through trauma. And one of the things that you can probably relate to is that if you've been through trauma, you may be what we call hypervigilant. You may be kind of always scanning your environment for danger, always waiting for the next thing to happen, always waiting for something to go wrong. Uh, trauma affects our brain in that way. And when you have a hypervigilant child, what can happen is that child, because they're hypervigilant, you might find that they are more likely to engage in distress-related behaviors. So a distress-related behavior to someone that's not paying attention just looks like a behavior. And from that point, what very often happens in a classroom setting is that as a child is having a difficult time, rather than understanding the child is having a difficult time, it's sometimes perceived that the child is giving people a, a hard time, uh, when in fact that's not the case, the child's struggling. And what often happens is an adult will respond with compliance demands. You will go to your seat, you will sit down, you will do this. Um, if a child is beginning to escalate, this might further escalate the child. Sometimes a child needs a calm voice and somebody says, oh, are you having a hard time? How can I help you? But oftentimes that's not the response they get. So the child might become begin to escalate. And as they escalate, they may enter into a fight or flight mode. And in a fight or flight mode, our body takes over and our body goes into a mode where we try to protect ourselves. We may try to flee. We may try to fight back. And when that occurs, that's when we often see restraint and seclusion happening, you know, um, and, and in fact, sometimes it happens before that uh, people put hands on kids proactively. And the moment you put hands on a kid, you're likely to, to induce that uh, fight or flight response mode. And once that happens, the chance of somebody getting hurt goes up significantly. But of course, what happens is it's traumatic. Being restrained and secluded is traumatic. So we further traumatize a child, which then feeds this cycle. It goes around because the more traumatic experience that someone has, the more likely they are to be hypervigilant, the more likely they are to be uh, responding with stress-related behaviors. So what we often see is that kids that are restrained and secluded are having it happen repeatedly uh, as their behaviors, again, due to stress occur. Now, um, one of the things that I want to think about here is how do we break that? How do we break that, that cycle of trauma? And, and I think it's very possible to break. Um, one is, and, and I've, I've put together this diagram recently for a class I was speaking to and was kind of thinking about, again, you know, let's not just talk about the cycle, but let's talk about opportunities here. And we're going to go into these in a little bit more depth in a few minutes. But there are opportunities to break the cycle by uh, furthering trauma-informed education. So how can we put trauma-informed practices into place? Knowing that kids that might be coming into our classroom have a trauma history, knowing that that may be aggravated by uh, harsh punitive practices, uh, having trauma-informed practices that support both students and teachers are going to help break that cycle. So that's certainly one thing we can do. We can also look for ways of collaborating proactively with kids Rather than dealing with issues in the heat of the moment, how can we work with kids and understand the things that are impacting them outside of the context of crisis? Uh, and I'm going to talk later about the collaborative proactive solutions model, which is one way of doing that. That's Dr. Ross Green's model or approach to helping kids. There's also educational neuroscience. Um, you know, I believe that all educators uh, should have some background. It doesn't mean you need to be a neurologist, but some background in, in how the brain works, how the brain functions, 
how the brain functions under stress. Because if you begin to understand what happens within the brain as a child is, is de-escalating or rather escalating, you're going to understand that as they're escalating, their, their prefrontal cortex is going offline. They're working from their amygdala. Their ear canals are tightening. They're not able to hear or respond to some of the things that you're saying. And if you understand those things are happening, you can take a better approach. So educational neuroscience is a great way. We also have to really focus on creating safety and focusing on trusted relationships. Such an important piece. You know, you sometimes hear, well, we don't have time to have relationships. And what I would say is you don't have time not to, especially with kids that need help the most. They need those safe relationships to help them to feel safe. Because when a child does not feel safe, they cannot feel regulated. If they do not feel regulated, they cannot become educated. You cannot learn while you're in a distress site. Uh, co-regulation. So many children lack the developmental capacity to, to self-regulate. Um, kids have all sorts of things done to them in the name of regulation. Uh, for instance, some people feel that throwing a child into a seclusion room against their will helps them to regulate. It does not. A child does not regulate in a seclusion room. If you are thrown into a room or area against your will and the door is held shut, you are not calming down. While sometimes people will note that, well, gee, after 20 minutes, they just kind of turned an old pile on the floor and they seem to be calm. What you're seeing is not calm. What you're probably seeing is the association. Uh, their brain has put a defense up to help protect them. Um, so don't misunderstand what's involved in terms of regulation. Children really require a well-regulated adult to help them if they're having a difficult time. Then, of course, there's approaches like low arousal. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about low arousal in a few minutes, but low arousal is understanding the impact that you have on the situation, that if you are escalated, that if you are, you know, using a loud voice and very, um, you know, threatening, it may not seem that way to you, that might not be your intent. But if you come across that way, you might be raising the temperature of the situation. So how can we reflect upon our own role in these situations and make sure we're mindful of that so that we can help to support children that need our help? And then, of course, if you get to crisis management, well, we've, we've kind of failed. If you get to the point where you're actively managing a crisis, we've not done what we need to do to break this cycle. So we, we really need to think about how we can how we can move forward and break this cycle. I will say that there are practices like restorative approaches and programs that can be helpful if we do get to the point where a crisis occurs or something that occurs that involves um, harm in some way. I'm not talking about, you know, um, you know, serious bodily harm, but, you know, if, if something arises and, and uh, the situation escalates, we might want to think about restorative approaches and programs as well. So there's a lot of things we can be doing to break that cycle. So let's talk about the impact of trauma just in, in very real terms. Um, what does trauma look like? Um, I know a, a young man who was restrained and secluded when he was very young, probably eight, nine years old. Now is, uh, I think, just turned 21 recently. Uh, can't sleep with his door shut at night. Um, you know, that door shut is reminiscent of being secluded. Uh, another young man I know um, who will drive by his old school and get physically ill, uh, physically ill just from from seeing the school and having those memories come up. Um, children that learn to fear authority, you know, that, um, you know, unfortunately, when when things begin to escalate, you go, well, we're going to call administration, we're going to call the principal. Well, then you have a child that that fears the authority in their life and, and may so for, for years to come. So there's a lot of real effects to the impact of trauma. And of course, trauma affects everyone involved. It affects the kids being restrained and secluded, the staff that might be doing it. That's a traumatic thing to do to a child. It affects the other children that might be witnessing that. 
again, think about the the impact this has on everyone. And of course, the parents, uh, those of you that are parents out there uh, that have gone through this, this has been traumatic for you as well. Um, so we know that there's a lot of trauma throughout regarding the use of restrained seclusion. So what about the other students? I mentioned this a minute ago, you know, other students viewing, um, you know, restraint or seclusion, uh, this can be very traumatic to them as well. But also think about the messaging it sends. When we know disproportionately kids with disabilities, black and brown kids, what's the message that's being sent to other children? This is how we work with, this is how we treat people that are different than we are. Um, that's really problematic and I think really troubling. Um, you know, again, just thinking about what might be being modeled. And of course, you know, there are injuries to students, um, all sorts of injuries, broken bones, head trauma, scratches, bruises, seizures. Uh, I remember a story about a young man that had to have a, a limb amputated because of the pressure on it for so long. Uh, there are a lot of injuries that can happen to students as a result of restrained seclusion. Uh, and of course, there are injuries to you know, teachers and staff. Um, a couple of quotes here. I've been punched in the face more times than I could remember. I've been hit in the head with chairs. When you're done, it's exhausting. It's a rare day when you don't get hurt at all. It really takes a toll on us. There's, there's no one really to talk to. And this is, again, why it's important when we think about some of these practices. They're, they should be put in place uh, like trauma-informed approaches, not just supporting the kids, but also supporting the teachers and staff. Because a, a teacher that is feeling unheard and traumatized is not going to be able to appropriately support your child. Uh, so it's really important that we're taking these things into account. Uh, I'll also mention here, though, that you know, despite some... Um, beliefs that, you know, educators need restrained seclusion to keep themselves and others safe. The truth of the matter is, the moment you put hands on someone, you are increasing the chance astronomically that someone will be injured, whether it's yourself, whether it's another uh, educator, or whether it's a student. Uh, putting hands is always a, an escalation of, of what might be happening. And of course, there have been far too many tragic deaths due to the results of restraint. Uh, just about, uh, I think it's not, well, I want to say about two years ago, uh, Cornelius Frederick, maybe about a year and a half ago now, Cornelius Frederick, uh, who was 16, died um, in a hospital two days after he was restrained at the Lakeside Academy in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, he had thrown a sandwich in the cafeteria. He was restrained by several staff members uh, for about 12 minutes, and it led to his death. Uh, Max Benson died in, uh, well, um, 2018. So November 2018, uh, just a couple of years ago, 13, autistic, um, was having a difficult time, was put into a prone restraint. Uh, Angelina Arndt uh, was only seven years old. She died in 2006 and she was suffocated in a face down restraint and held there by staff um, for several minutes and it resulted in her death. Um, many, many kids that we've lost, Michael. <laughs> Oh, excuse me for one minute. My, my dog is seeming to, uh, to help out here. So bear, bear with me for one second here. Okay. Looks like the dog has, has stopped talking. Um, one of my kids decided to do me a favor and, and let the dog in. Um, so the you know tragic deaths, Michael Renner Lewis, uh, he was killed on the first day of high school uh, back in 2003. Uh, he had had a seizure and became agitated. And, uh, you know, he was agitated after having the seizure, was physically restrained. Uh, Corey Foster was on a basketball court when staff uh, told him to leave. He didn't want to leave. And he ended up being restrained and put into a cardiac arrest. Uh, young man named Jonathan King uh, was in Georgia. 
was put in a seclusion room frequently and uh, one day hung himself inside of the seclusion room. These are absolutely tragic um, consequences that can be avoided. And again, you know, if we can do better, if we can prevent children and staff from being injured, we can prevent deaths, we need to do that. And of course, the other thing that we know is that if you look at kids that are being restrained and secluded and suspended and expelled and subjected in some states to corporal punishment, disabled, black, brown, traumatized, very young, it's these same kids that are getting pushed into the juvenile justice system. Ultimately, they may end up getting pushed into the criminal justice system and really pushed along what we call the school to prison pipeline. We have prisons that are full of, of, of individuals that were dyslexic, had dysgraphia, ADD, ADHD, autism, uh, undiagnosed um, you know, disabilities that have ended up not being appropriately supported, that have ended up getting pushed in our criminal justice system. We can absolutely do better for our kids. We can do better for our society as well. This is not benefiting anyone here. So the question is, if we know that these things have an impact, we know who they impact, why does it happen? Why are kids being restrained and secluded in school? And, and what we find is that most often it's a matter of culture and training. Not every school is using techniques like restraint and seclusion. Even schools that serve very po similar populations of children are not necessarily doing it in the same way. Um, very often, especially when you talk about your your private or your non-public facilities, there's this belief, well, these these kids are these kids are different. These kids, you know, um, you know, require this. And, and it's absolutely not true. There are far better ways to work with and support kids. But if it is a culture of your school or your school district or your facility, uh, that's what people are introduced to when they come in as new teaching staff. And if you're training then is is not focused on the right things, is not focused on um, you know, um, pro, you know, proactive and preventative ways of, of reducing and eliminating these things. Very often the training itself can be encouraging the use of restraint seclusion. Uh, I remember one time review, you know, having somebody that had been reviewing a training manual that shared a quote with me from one of the manuals that said something along the lines of, uh, and again, this is a training manual on de-escalation. Uh, it also gets into uh, the use of restraint. And the manual said something along the lines of, imagine a child might become violent at any moment. If that's your assumption going into a classroom is imagining a child might become violent at any moment, you will yourself be hypervigilant. You will yourself be more reactive. Um, so we need to do what we can to change culture and training within schools. And we need we need disruptors. Uh, those of you that are watching today or in the, the recording that this doesn't feel right to you. You think there's got to be something better. We need you. We need you to, to stand up, to look into the options, to try to convince others because, you know, others will make a compelling case. Well, we don't like to do it, but we have to do it. It's necessary. And it's not. There are far better things we can be doing. I will also say that very often we find that restraint and seclusion are more common in settings where there's a very strong focus on compliance and control. So it's all about compliance, uh, all about having kids comply with demands. And while certainly being educated, kids need to understand the demands that are placed on them. Um, we need to move away from compliance-based approaches and, and, you know, lean on, you know, compassion and relationship and understanding children's needs. There are far better ways to do things. Um, so it, it really is something that, you know, does happen as a result of, you know, training and culture. So let's talk about some myths and misconceptions here around restraint and seclusion. So these are things that if you're a parent, you might've heard before. Um, 
you could even be an educator that may have said some of these things before. And and I'm not saying that you've said them because you think that they are not true. You, you may be saying them because that's what you've been told. But not everything that we're told is always true. And sometimes myths and misconceptions continue to spread, even when there's data out there to really kind of debunk them. So let's talk about a couple of them. Uh, one is restraint is safe. So I've heard lots of variations on this. Uh, I was told this uh, at my son's school. I was uh, someone proudly held up a badge and said, we're trained in safe restraint and seclusion. Of course, if you say that to me today, I, I have a much different reaction. But, um, you know, we're told things like, well, it's safe when performed by trained staff or it's safe and therapeutic. We're, we're trained in safe restraint or or even some kids like it. So there are a lot of things that we've heard around the use of restraint and restraint being safe. The truth is that physical restraint is never without risk. When you put hands on a child to restrain them, it is a strong possibility that that child feeling threatened will enter into a fight or flight response mode. When a child enters a fight or flight response mode, they are not processing with their prefrontal cortex. They are surviving with their amygdala and their threat detection system in their lower brain. A child that's in that state may be flinging their arms, kicking, biting, scratching, doing whatever they need to, to survive. And of course, during that, the child themselves might become injured. The adults are more likely to become ag uh, agitated. They are more likely to themselves enter a fight or flight response. If you are having a child that's trying to bite you, you might enter that fight or flight response as well. When a much smaller child and larger adults uh, are all entering a fight or flight response mode, it's anything can happen. And the chance that someone is going to get injured goes up astronomically. The one most at risk, of course, is the smallest one in the equation. So when you're talking about, you know, a, a seven-year-old being restrained by two adults, and even if they bit or kicked, they're more likely to be seriously injured. But the chance of the adults being injured is high as well. So restraint is never without risk. In fact, you know, it can it can lead to compromises in, in the ability to breathe. It can lead to, uh, you know, tears and, and, and fractures and all sorts of uh, abrasions and injuries. Uh, so you can't say, the, well, let me rephrase that. The only safe restraint, the only safe restraint is one in which everyone is a willing participant. So if I were going to teach you how to do a restraint hold and you were willing to let me show you how to do it, that may be arguably safe. But outside of that context, it is always with risk. And that's an important thing to remember. Another thing that we hear is that seclusion helps uh, kids to calm down. So, well, we need to put them in seclusion so they could calm down. Um, you might hear something like, well, kids need a, a space to self-regulate. We might hear children need a quiet place to cool them down. Um, there's nothing calming about being put into a room against your will. If you are forced into a room and the door is held shut, that is not calming. Um, it is equivalent. You know, well, it's not equivalent. It's far worse. But you know, imagine when somebody tells you to calm down. That doesn't calm you down. Being thrown into a room by yourself isn't going to help you calm down. Um, you know, imagine that, you know, for a moment you were out shopping and while you were out shopping, you saw a parent and a child having a, an interaction that was escalating and the parent then physically drugged the child and put them into a, uh, a changing room and then held the door shut while the child banged and screamed to get out. Um, you would probably call the police. Uh, yet this kind of scenario plays out in our schools where kids are often put into these spaces uh, against their will and the doors held shut. Um, and there's nothing calming about that. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, what may happen is a child may enter a dissociative state. They may shut down. 
that is not a calming, that is a survival instinct. So children don't calm down in seclusion rooms. It, it's just, it, it's an absolute myth. And then in fact, many of the children that are secluded are actually children that are probably developmentally not at a point where they can self-regulate. They're probably still at a point where they require an adult to help them to co-regulate. So this is another big myth is that seclusion is calming. Uh, another myth here is that you're going to know if it's happening. And and anybody out here watching, um, I'd be curious to know if, if you knew when it began to happen to your child. Um, a lot of people don't know that it's happening to their children. And while we do have states that have recording requirements, so many instances go and report it. Um, you know, when I think about my own son's instances, uh, at one point, um, there were probably about seven or eight instances that I knew had happened during a period of time. I was told, um, well, only two of those got reported. I could easily prove at least four of those had happened. Um, and the school later told me what a great job they did reporting because their numbers were higher than everyone else's. Um, schools do a typically notoriously bad job of self-reporting the use of restrained seclusion. In some cases, it's blatant. In some cases, uh, I've heard of staff being told, well, gee, unless there's physical marks, you, you don't need to report it. Um, there are some states, uh, Colorado, I believe, has a five minutes uh, for to be called restraint. It's got to happen for five minutes. It's unbelievable. Um, so at any rate, don't assume that you're going to know that your child is going to be, that your child has been restrained or secluded. There's a couple things that can happen. One, you may have a non-speaking child that is unable to come home and tell you verbally that this is what happened to them. They might come home with an unexplained scratch or bruise or, or something else, um, but you may get no feedback on what happened in that classroom. Uh, there are cases where children that are verbal don't necessarily want to come home and say to you, well, guess what? I was restrained and thrown in the naughty room. They feel ashamed of what happened. They're not necessarily anxious to come home and say, this happened to me. And there are also kids, especially very young kids, that assume you know everything that happens to them during their day. Somehow you are magical and whatever's happened, you're going to know about it. So they might not tell you. So there are a number of reasons you might not know this is happening. So don't assume that you will. You know, talk to your children if you have concerns. Uh, you know, make sure that you're looking for anything, you know, even school avoidance. Suddenly your child who loves school, you can't get them on a bus um, or they don't want to sleep with their door shut at night or whatever it may be. Look for signs that might show you that there's been some some trauma or some issue there. Uh, and another uh, myth that we hear, this is our only option. You know, it's kind of the, what else do you expect us to do? We need to protect others from harm. Uh, we need to protect against self-harm. I mean, we're doing this for them. You know, we, we can't let them bang their head. So we've, we've got to take them down to the ground and put them into a restraint. Um, there are many things that can be done differently to reduce and eliminate the needs for restraint seclusion. Saying it is your only option is only saying that you're not willing to look at other options. There are a lot of things that can be done instead of restraining and secluding children. So it's easy sometimes as any professional to get caught in the trap of, you know, you've been doing something for a long time and, and this is how you've been doing it. But I think all of us always need to be looking at how can we learn more? How can we do better? Um, and, and how can we do better for those that we're serving? So that's some of the, the myths I wanted to make you aware of. I want to talk a little bit now about uh, law. Uh, I'm going to talk about federal law and guidance around restraint seclusion. This might be helpful to you if you're a parent trying to understand the landscape. Uh, if you're an educator, some of these things you might not have heard before and might be helpful to you as well. Um, so let's talk a little bit about federal law and guidance. Now, there is currently no federal law when it comes to use of restraint seclusion in schools across the nation. No, 
none. Uh, while we do have federal law in other areas, whether it be mental health settings or um, criminal justice, there are no federal laws that regulate the use of restrained seclusion in schools across the country. There has been attention to this for well over a decade. Uh, we can go back to 2009, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but there have been efforts to pass legislation for well over a decade regarding restraint and seclusion. If we go back to look at our state laws, what we find is that with no federal law, states can produce their own laws. And, um, you know, they vary considerably. Some states have followed federal guidance that's been offered. Uh, some states have not. But at the end of the day, uh, what we're looking at here is that your rights, your civil rights or human rights, they shouldn't vary at a state line. Uh, they shouldn't vary from Maryland to Virginia or from California to Oregon or wherever it might be. Um, there are certain things that should be protected as civil rights uh, across the country. And I believe that restraint and seclusion falls in that category. Uh, I believe our civil rights fall in that category. So let's go back to um, let's go back to 2009. Um, in 2009, the Government Accountability Office, had put out a report and that report looked at it. It was called Seclusions and Restraints. It was selected cases of death and abuse at private and public schools and treatment centers. And that report, well, one, there were a couple of observations. They said, well, gee, there's no, no federal law that protects kids against restraint seclusion way back in 2009. They also found hundreds of cases of abuse and death related to the use of restraint and seclusion. Um, so way back in 2009, the you know federal government was looking at this issue, studying this issue, and had pretty concerning findings. In 2012, the U.S. Department of Education released guidance on the use of restraint seclusion. Now, guidance is just that. It is guidance. It is the federal government saying that we uh, are recommending that you approach things differently, uh, we are recommending that you uh, make changes in, in how you implement your local policies, but they are only recommendations. You are not bound to guidance, but these um, these recommendations uh, were, were pretty significant. Uh, it came in the form of a document called the Restraint Seclusion Resource Document, and part of that document was something called 15 Principles, and I'm not going to go through all of those today, but some of those principles included things like every effort should be made to prevent the need for the use of restraint and seclusion. Physical restraint um, should not be used except in situations where the child's behavior poses imminent danger of serious physical harm to self or others, and other interventions are ineffective and should be discontinued as soon as imminent danger of physical harm to self or others has dissipated. So this is saying, again, remember that definition earlier, imminent serious physical harm? Imminent serious physical harm is a life or death situation. So the federal government said, you should not be doing these things unless it is this kind of situation. Why? Think of the impacts. Think of the trauma. Think of the injuries. Think of the potential for death. So, you know, the federal government recognized the bar should be high for restraint seclusion because the impact can be significantly high. In those principles, there were also things that said, um, they shouldn't be used as a form of discipline or as a means of coercion or retaliation or even for convenience of the staff. Sometimes it's scary that you need to specify some of these things, but it, it happened because it was necessary. Staff was using these for convenience or punishment. 
Um, a lot of the early documentation talks about that. You shouldn't be using these things for punishment because, again, the consequences can be really, really great. Uh, restraint seclusion, of course, should not be used in a way that restricts breathing. Uh, back in 2012, that was said. We still have nearly 20 states that allow for prone restraint, uh, despite that guidance. And this talks about parents being informed on policies related to restraint and seclusion. So the federal government put out a lot of guidance. Um, we can fast forward to 2014. And in 2014, uh, the, there was a U.S. Senate report, and it said there is no evidence that physically restraining or putting children in unsupervised seclusion in the K-12 through school system provides any educational or therapeutic benefit to the child. In fact, the use of either seclusion or restraint in non-emergency situations poses significant physical and psychological dangers to the student. So we've known for a long time that this is dangerous, restraining and secluding kids is a very risky proposition. So anything you could do to reduce that uh, need to restrain or seclude children must be done. Uh, yet there are, are places that will tell you that it is necessary and they don't have choices. In 2016, there was a Dear Colleague letter issued. Now, a Dear Colleague letter is when a federal agency, in this case, the United States Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, provides guidance to their peers throughout the nation. So this is a way of providing guidance to departments of education uh, and others about uh, any host of topics. In this case, this was about the use of restraint seclusion. And the purpose of this was to talk uh, to school districts about how the use of restraint seclusion could result in discrimination against students with disabilities. And one of the things that stuck out to me in this documentation was that it talked about how the use of restraint and seclusion can be so traumatic that if it only ever happened once, that it might not, uh, might nonetheless have an effect that can create academic and behavioral difficulties for a child that even if they were never restrained and secluded again, could result in a denial of a free and appropriate public education. And of course, a free and a pub appropriate public education is the guidance that we have through our IDEA here in the United States that says every child is is um, um, is it has the right to a free and appropriate public education. So it's a really big deal to say that, wow, restraint seclusion could result in a denial of FAPE. Um, so really important guidance that came out to talk about um, to talk about that. And then from there, uh, back in 2019, not that long ago, the Government Accountability Office again uh, provided guidance to the U.S. Department of Education and said, wow, the data you're collecting is not very good. Uh, there are a lot of problems. We found that 70% um, of districts reported zero incidents, and we know that many of those districts, in fact, did have incidents. Um, so there is a huge underreporting issue at the federal level as well, and the data is not very good. Uh, if you look at the data, um, you know, I think the last data cycle, it was a hundred and some thousand restraint and seclusion instances. I'll tell you that in my state, Maryland, we had like 28,000 uh, in one of the last reports. Maryland um, is not a huge portion of the federal data. Uh, the truth is the federal data is not accurate. Um, and we see that happening in many areas. Now, I do want to mention that there is now out um, federal legislation called the Keeping All Students Safe Act. This has been reintroduced. So this is legislation that has been introduced in May of this year, and uh, this year being uh, 2021. It was introduced in the Senate and Congress here in the United States, and the Keeping All Students Safe Act would prohibit the use of seclusion. It would ban the use of prone and supine restraint. It would focus on 
uh, training and education to reduce restraint and seclusion throughout the um, schools in the nation that receive public funding. Um, this law has been introduced before and has not passed. I am hopeful that it might move forward this time, but to move forward, uh, I need all of you that are watching this to, to call and contact your representatives and ask them to, to support this legislation. Uh, it has just not moved forward in the past, and we need more support to get it moving forward. Uh, while it's not perfect, no legislation ever is, and, but I do think it's a very solid step in the right direction. So I would encourage you in thinking about what you can do. Uh, part of what you can do is contact your, your lawmakers and ask them to support legislative change. Now, with that, I want to get into one of the final segments of today's conversation, and I want to talk about a better way forward. So we've talked about defining these terms of restraint and seclusion. We've talked about who's impacted, what the impact is, what the guidance and federal law has looked like here in the United States. Let's talk more um, meaningfully for a moment about how can we reduce these things? What are the things that we can do to reduce and eliminate the practices of restraint and seclusion? So I wanna begin by giving you kind of a very high level recommendation. And that is if you, you, you took an elevator ride with me and you said, hey, what can we do to reduce and eliminate the use of restraint and seclusion? I might say something like this. I might say, well, gee, we really need to focus on trauma-informed practices, both for our students and our schools and our teachers, uh, understanding that people that have been through trauma may uh, respond uh, in ways that may lead to um, behaviors of concern. And understanding the impacts of trauma helps us to better meet those individuals' needs. I would say that we need to have a good understanding of neuroscience, of the science of the brain, and understanding what happens in the brain when someone is going through a traumatic event, or what is the effect of trauma on the brain, and how might that influence behavior in the future. I would say that we need to follow relationship-driven approaches. So um, all the children that I hear success stories from, children that have often had um, very tragic stories, um, you know, often find success when they find someone who takes the time to develop a relationship with them, understand what their needs are, understand what might be motivating them and support them appropriately. And then, of course, I'm a big supporter of what I would term as collaborative approaches. So collaborative approaches are working with kids instead of doing things to kids. And very often, so many of our behavioral interventions are about doing things to kids. It's about kids that are having a hard time. We come up with solutions. We don't work with the kids and we impose these solutions on our children. We need to make a better step into working with children to help them really solve the problems that might be affecting their lives. So let's drill into that a little bit more and talk a bit more specifically about a couple of things. Uh, I think the first thing that's really required here is that we need a new lens on behavior. Um, you know, behavior, you know, very often um, the mentality on behavior is that people look at the tip of the iceberg. They look at the behavior itself. And in fact, um, if you are a trained behaviorist, um, you might say that, well, gee, the observable behavior is the only thing I care about. That's the thing that I can see and measure. Unfortunately, there's a lot that lies beneath the surface. And if you're only looking at the observable behavior, you can be missing a lot. You can be missing the fact that the child has a traumatic background. That traumatic background leads the child to feel unsafe. That lack of safety leads a child to have stress-induced behaviors. Um, you might be discounting the impact of disability and even the, the intersection there of disability and trauma. Um, you might be neglecting to really realize that 
you know, kid that's having a difficult time may not have the skills they need to respond differently. Uh, or perhaps the expectations that are put on the child are inappropriate. Uh, sometimes they're too high, sometimes they're too low. Uh, we have a lot of children, uh, especially children that might be non-speaking, that have very low expectations, when in fact they, they can and do much more when they are properly supported. So we need to shift away our approaches and, and behavior of you know just trying to look at the behavior and better understand what's getting in a child's way really keeping in mind that the the tip of the iceberg is the part that we can see. We really need to dig deeper and understand what's happening. And from there, uh, there are a number of alternatives to restraining seclusion. And when I say alternatives, that's not really even the appropriate word, but, but let me start there. Uh, one of the alternatives that I've mentioned before is something called Ukeru. Uh, Ukeru is a trauma-informed crisis management approach that was developed by a group called Grafton Integrated Health based out of Virginia here in the United States. Uh, the main idea behind Ukero was this concept of comfort versus control. This idea that when people are having a hard time, rather than trying to control them, how can we comfort them? How can we help them when they're really having a hard time? How can we as caregivers be at our best when they might be at their worst? So Ukero is about understanding the brain, the impact of trauma. It's, as I mentioned, a trauma-informed approach. It's trying to understand the experiences that people have had and helping them to um, get better outcomes with the right support. So the Okara training involves both a um, kind of a classroom portion that talks a lot about trauma, talks a lot about de-escalation and supporting and working with kids. But there is also a physical intervention to um, Ukero as well. And I've actually taken the Ukero training because I wanted to better understand what was involved and uh, know how uh, it worked to understand if it was something that might be worthwhile. So um, what, what I'll tell you is that the way Ukero works is that one, you your first line with Ukero is trying to understand the impact of trauma, trying to build relationships, trying to avoid the need for any kind of crisis management in the first place. If you do get to a crisis situation, rather than using restraint and seclusion, Ukero uses a, um, they developed a program. What, what they actually did is, is Ukero was a facility that runs a lot of um, special education day schools and even residential facilities. They were working with a lot of kids that had uh, a lot of, um, a lot of difficulty prior to arriving in their their facilities, and um, you know they at one point were using a lot of restraint and seclusion. Uh, if you go back 15 years ago, just like everybody else, they use restraint and seclusion. They ultimately reached a point where they realized that a lot of staff were being injured, a lot of students were being injured, um, the outcomes were not good for anyone, um, teacher satisfaction was very low. And they had a new CEO that came in and that new CEO said, we can do something better. This is not working for anyone. It's not working for the, the people we serve. It's not working for our staff. And he set a team uh, on the mission to develop something different. And after a, a couple of years of development, they, they developed this uh, program called Ukero. And, and with Ukero, if you get to the physical intervention, they use these pads called blocking pads and they're not used in an offensive way, rather they're used in a defensive way. So if a child became escalated, you can use these pads to help a staff member feel safe. But the, the point here is that you're not taking the, the blocking pad and charging at the child to push them in a corner. You're, you're taking the pad, 
you're taking steps backwards, you're trying to make yourself smaller, you're using a calm voice, you're continuing to try to de-escalate rather than putting hands on kids. And with Ukeru, the Grafton facilities were able to completely eliminate the use of seclusion, reduce the use of restraint in all of their um, special education day schools uh, completely. So no more restraint in any of those settings and eliminate all but a very rare use of restraint in a uh, residential facility. So they had really fantastic uh, results with the program. And, you know, what they found was that people often think they need these tools to keep themselves safe. But of course, the data shows the opposite. The data shows when you restrain and seclude a child, uh, there is an increase in the chance of injury to everyone involved, whether it's the child or the staff. And when they you look at their data, you know, they were able to uh, reduced restraint by 99%. Um, and it actually led to not only a reduction of injuries in teachers and students, it also resulted in better teacher satisfaction, better retention, and they ended up saving millions of dollars along the journey as well because they weren't experiencing these issues. So not only can you reduce these things and eliminate these things, you can also do so and improve the, the culture and the outcomes for the entire facility. Uh, so I think that's really important. Um, so that's that's one alternative. And again, you know, I at the end of the day, I don't care what someone do, does to reduce and eliminate these practices. The fact is, there's many things you can do to reduce and eliminate these practices. The idea is that you you take the step, you do something, you make a decision that you want to reduce these things, and you begin heading towards that direction. Uh, another program I talk about quite a bit is collaborative and proactive solutions. Uh, any of you that know Dr. Ross Green, I'm a big fan of Dr. Green's work. Uh, he developed a model called Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, and he's described it in several books, The Explosive Child, Lost at School, Raising Human Beings. And, and this model that he developed starts out with this very simple um, guiding philosophy. And the guiding philosophy of Collaborative Proactive Solutions is kids do well if they can. And that seems like an incredibly simple thing to say. So how does that help reduce and eliminate restraint and seclusion? Well, here's what happens more commonly in our schools. In our schools, we often think kids do well if they want to. Now, if, you're, if your belief is that kids do well if they want to, when kids aren't doing well, what is your response? Your response is very often that you're going to offer rewards and consequences because you look at it as a matter of motivation. Under the model of kids doing well, if they can, you look at it different, differently. You realize that kids are often lagging skills or may have problems that are getting in their way to being more successful. It is preferable to do well than not to do well. No one wants to be punished. No one wants to have things taken away. No one wants to be yelled at. No one wants to be restrained. No one wants to be secluded. So doing well is preferable. But you know, when, when a child doesn't do well in math or, or reading, we we come up with an intervention. We offer to teach them skills. When a child is having a hard time in the realm of behavior, we offer them consequences and rewards. We're not really helping them to learn skills with consequences and rewards. In fact, uh, I'm a big fan of the work of Alfie Cohen and Alfie would say, well, rewards and consequences are the same thing. Uh, he's got a great book called Punished uh, by Rewards. And the idea here is that a uh, reward and a punishment is, is really very much the same. It's saying, if you do this, you will either get this or I will do this to you. Um, that kind of approach is good at one thing, and that's short-term compliance. It doesn't help kids to develop skills or motivation to be successful. So with Dr. Green's model, he begins with that assumption that kids do well if they can. 
and begins to understand what are the lagging skills or unsolved problems. Uh, he's got a process that involves a um, tool called the ALSOP. And the ALSOP is the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. And that ALSOP lets you begin to understand what's getting in the kid's way. Because if we begin to understand what's getting in the kid's way, we can help them to develop skills and solve problems. Now, what's really miraculous, <laughs> maybe that's the wrong word, but really amazing about this work is that Dr. Green's work is really based on this idea that we want to be collaborative, meaning we want to work with the kid. We want to be proactive. We want to change our timing. We don't want to just uh, try to deal with crisis in the heat of the moment. We want to say, how can we avoid a crisis from happening in the first place? The best crisis management is to never get there. The best crisis management is to prevent crisis from happening in the first place. So in Dr. Green's model, you begin to understand what the things are that are getting in the child's way. And then you have, uh, they have what they call plan B. And plan B is a way of working with kids to understand what's getting in their way and help develop a solution together. So it begins with a very simple process where you might begin with observations, where you notice a child's having a hard time under a certain circumstance. You, not in the heat of the moment, but sometimes out of the heat of the moment, have a discussion with the child. Try to understand what's getting in their way. So, you know, it might be as famously uh, Dr. Green would put it, I've noticed you're having difficulty with X, what's up? Uh, and from there, you might begin to understand what's getting in the child's way. You. Children aren't always even used to having people ask about what's causing things to be difficult for them. So this is a really great approach to having an understanding of what's getting in their way. But from there, you express the, the child. What are the adult concerns here? Why, why did this situation you know, concern the adult? And, and then you move into a collaborative phase and you think about how can we work together to solve this problem? So rather than focusing on doing things to kids, we focus on working with kids. And, and very often, kids that are having difficulty in school, if they're having behaviors of concern, uh, what might happen, they might have a functional behavioral assessment and that functional behavior assessment will, will come out and say, well, gee, uh, we think that they're attention seeking or avoiding or trying to escape or, you know, uh, seeking, you know, sensory input. Um, you know, a number of these kind of functions of behavior, it's kind of a classical approach uh, through behaviorism. And then they will come up with a hypothesis of, of a solution. And it often involves rewards and consequences. Um, what we really want to do is shift that from rewards and consequences to understanding what's getting a child's way and helping them to develop skills to be more successful. That is a durable, lasting change. Uh, and of course, this model, um, I will say, um, I've had this conversation with Dr. Green many times. Uh, this model will work with, I've never heard him tell me a kid that it won't work with. Let me put it that way. People often make assumptions. Well, uh, it wouldn't work with a non-speaking kid, right? Well, no, absolutely. The model can be adapted uh, for different children in different situations. So again, another approach out there to help reduce and eliminate practices. Uh, another approach I mentioned earlier is the low arousal approach. Uh, there is a um, uh, UK group called Studio 3. Uh, Professor Andrew McDonald leads that group up. Uh, he was trained in classical behaviorism. Uh, however, uh, I think he, he calls himself a recovering behaviorist. Uh, he learned early on that a lot of things that were being done to people in the name of behavior were causing lots of uh, uh, lots of damage and uh, weren't helping people that most needed help. And he developed an approach called the low arousal approach. And what's really unique about um, the Studio 3 and low arousal approach is that a lot of it reflects on the importance of the caregiver or the educator or the parent, whoever you might be in the situation, supporting someone else. And the importance of 
our own state in terms of how we support people. Um, if we are becoming escalated while we're trying to support people, we're not necessarily going to be effective. If as a situation, as the, the temperature rises in a situation, if we're rising along with it, we're probably influencing that change. Uh, I always love the idea that, um, you know, that, that our, our, um, responses can be contagion. So, you know, if we are escalated, we are probably escalating the situation. So a lot of the focus around Studio 3 and low arousal is understanding our own state, what we can do to kind of have a low arousal state so that we can influence the situation to help bring the temperature down rather than escalating the situation. And of course, there are a lot of other great resources out there in terms of things we can do to make a difference. Um, it's easy as an educator maybe to feel overwhelmed. And that's why I would say that models like Dr. Ross Green's model is a really great one because here's a, a very clear uh, model that you can follow and that can have tremendous impact. But there's a lot of great research out there. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Mona Della Hook. Um, if you want to understand more about behavior, the book Beyond Behaviors uh, is really a fantastic resource for understanding that not all behavior is volitional, not all behavior is a choice. Um, you know, understanding the importance of relative safety and relationships. Uh, Dr. Uh, Lori Desitels has a great book, which is called Connections Over Compliance. And she won me over with the title alone, um, because very often we live in a compliance-based world. And we see the impact that has, both in our schools, uh, on our streets, and law enforcement. Uh, it's the wrong approach to be supporting people. You know, we really need to understand what's getting in their way. Lori teaches a fantastic program. Uh, she's a professor at Butler University, teaches a program in applied educational neuroscience. Uh, I've had a honor, the honor of meeting a number of the students that have gone through that program. I even spoke in, in the uh, class previously as well. Uh, it's a great program that helps people understand this framework called educational neuroscience, which if you begin to understand the science of the brain and the things that you can do to help people understand their brain and body connection, you can make tremendous positive differences. And of course, uh, work like Alfie Cohen, you know, Punished by Rewards, lots of great research out there. Of course, I, I significantly recommend, um, you know, the, the work of others. Dr. Bruce Perry, I'm trying to think of what I've got behind me here. Uh, here's another great book. Uh, this is by Joe Broomer, who we're going to be talking to soon uh, about building trauma-informed restorative school. Uh, many of you have probably uh, heard of this book recently as well, What Happened to You. Uh, it was a book that was a collaboration between Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry. Uh, looks at the impact of trauma and the, the lasting impacts of trauma. Uh, can can really be a lot of great resources out there. So there's a lot out there that you can do to find better ways of supporting kids. So uh, I want to give you my th final thoughts, and then we can take any questions that anyone might have or any discussion you might want to have. So just kind of a few final thoughts here. Um, one, you know. I feel hopeful. Um, you know, I started this journey a few years ago and, you know, my son today is doing uh, really well. Uh, we were able to get him into a, a, a non-public school that we helped to select that is a trauma-informed program that actually works with kids that have had school-based trauma as well. It's been a fantastic program, so much emphasis on relationships. Um, you know, he's doing really well, but there are many out there that are not. There are many out there that are being restrained and secluded um, and, and really being subjected to a lot of harm. Um, you know, so it, it's a huge problem that said, you know, I do have some hope here. I have seen some positive things happening in the last few years. Uh, I'm seeing more and more people kind of coming together. You know, the fact that we've got 15,000 people as part of our community at the Alliance, 
um, is a positive thing. You know, we're, we're coming together. We're talking about these issues. Uh, I know amazing advocates from across the, the world that are doing work right now to try to, to reduce and eliminate these practices. And, you know, I, I can't tell you, I mean, there's, there's so many people I've, I've talked to uh, across the country as well that uh, I, I just have uh, really um, amazing, um, you know, um, feelings for the work that they're doing wherever they might be, whether they're in Massachusetts or North Carolina or California or Canada, you know, there, there's people out there that are, you know, taking these issues to their, their school boards that are taking these issues, to their schools. And, and this is really, really critical. So I feel that there's a lot of reason to have hope and that we have solutions. You know, we know there are alternatives. We know there are better things that we can do. We know that by using these alternatives, we can make the schools safer for everyone. So it's not just a matter of, well, gee, we want our kids to be safer. We want everybody to be safer in this equation. And we know that there are things we can do out there to make sure that's happening. Uh, from a um, national standpoint here in the United States, of course, we have the Keeping All Students Safe Act. Certainly, I hope that moves forward. I encourage all of you to contact your elected uh, representatives and ask them to co-sponsor it or support the legislation. But again, I'm really... Um, I really feel good about this growing movement that we have. Um, you know, we, we kind of joke now there, there's um, uh, kind of a community of people working together, you know, whether it's people like Ross Green and Mona Della Hook and Lori Desitels and, um, you know, uh, Matthew Portell and, and, and you know, um, Greg Santusi and all, all these people out there doing amazing work. And, you know, kind of jokingly, we, we often say it's, we need these disruptors. We need these people out there that are kind of disrupting the the system as it is to bring about this positive change. And we need all of you as well, whether you're parents or teachers or self-advocates, we need a lot of disruptors to help change the model of where we are. But I think there's reasons to be hopeful here. So I guess, you know, really tie this all together. And I know I've said this a lot, but, you know, we can do better. And if we can do better, we must do better. We know we can make our schools safer for everybody. We know we can reduce these practices, eliminate these practices, that can save lives. There are a few policies that might be in place in a school that can actually save a life, but the policy around the use of restraint seclusion can absolutely save lives, uh, can make lives better as well, can prevent injury. Um, and again, you know, I think can improve the situation for everyone. So, you know, if we can do better, we, we need to do better. And I look forward to all of us working together to try to do that. So with that, uh, I've got a little bit of contact information up here. Uh, if anybody's interested, uh, you can, of course, go to our website, which is endseclusion.org. We post articles on there um, on a regular basis. Uh, we've been actually really active this month. We've had a lot of articles lately. Uh, they are stories from individual uh, families that have had been, been through these experiences. They're stories from self-advocates. They're stories from professionals. They're stories from teachers. A um, lot of content about how we can you know, address these issues and reduce and uh, eliminate these practices. You're always, of course, welcome to reach out. I've got a phone number and email address there as well. Uh, if there's anything that we can do to help what you're trying to do in your community, I'm always happy to have a conversation with, with anyone. I'm always happy to do a presentation like this for, for school districts or others that are interested in doing something to reduce and eliminate these practices. So with that, I'm going to take the presentation down and we'll see if anybody has any questions or comments here. So let me make this go away. And uh, this has been a little challenging for me because I'm not used to... Uh, uh, driving everything while presenting as well. I, I do see there's a lot of comments here. Um, and I would say that if you have any, any questions or comments now, feel free to put those in. I'm going to just kind of browse through these real quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, I see, let's see, 
Um, uh, let's see. Uh, all right. So uh, Floyd just had a comment. The space Cornelius Frederick was killed in, I was trained in Ukero, yet at least three of those trained staff went to restraint um, uh, when no intervention was needed at all. And how do we help people develop better school skills and the ability to access those skills if they make um, it into the heat of the moment? Right. So you, you're right. They, they had actually, Floyd, they had begun training in Ukero. They hadn't completed their training in Ukero. In fact, I think uh, I think they, the Ukero team was actually scheduled to be coming back out like the day or day or two after this event had happened. Uh, in the video, you can actually see the pads um, that were present um, when they decided to restrain staff. Um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot that comes into mind here when it comes to helping to bring these changes into effect. One is giving people the tools. So the tools is, is about the training. How can we train people on different things that they can do to reduce and eliminate these practices? A lot of it's a mindset shift, you know, and, and one of the most important things is getting leadership on board. So that can be the, you know, um, in this case, um, the facility that uh, Cornelius died in was operated by a, a group called Sequel, which is a for-profit uh, operation. And uh, uh, that facility is closed down. They've had other instances of issue in the past as well. Um, I would say that in your, your more typical setting, um, changing the culture, changing the training, um, and, and, and really trying to get people to understand the, um, the need for this change. Um, you know, one of the things that surprises me when, when I talk to people is that they really don't understand the risk related to restraint. Uh, as I've said, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, it's safe when you know what you're doing. People are led to believe that's true. And if that's your, your mindset, if you think, well, gee, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it, but it's okay. I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, as you mentioned, Floyd, when, when people do these things, um, it's very easy for them to enter that fight or flight mode and for their instincts to take over. Some of the restraints that happen that have, have killed people don't resemble the things they've even been trained in. Um, so I would say it's a complicated question, but it begins with, with the training. It begins with culture change and really getting people to understand the need for this, the need to reduce and eliminate these things, the consequence of what can happen if, if you do this. And again, you know, I think that people very often don't really truly understand that. So it's an ongoing um, uh, effort that we've got to make. Uh, another comment here, um, uh, you know, just just kind of a thank you comment. Uh, Nicole said, when can we expect laws to finally be implemented around seclusion? I don't understand why many states, New Jersey's don't uh, require schools to report the data to them. Uh, do you know how many states require schools to report restrained seclusion? Um, I agree with you. We shouldn't be waiting this long for laws. Um, federal law would be good because all states would then be bound to uh, the, the federal standards, which would ban the use of seclusion. Um, and we already do have some reporting things in, in uh, place that should be being followed. Um, at the Alliance, one of the things we're planning on doing is developing, in fact, we're in the process of developing model state level legislation. Um, let's imagine for a second federal legislation passes. That's great. It probably still doesn't do everything we want it to do, but it would be a step in the right direction. Or it might not pass, in which case I think it's really important that everyone that's out there that has an interest in this considers what they can do to help forward a state specific law 
uh, wherever you might be. And that should that should include things like data reporting requirements. So we're drafting now model legislation. I'd love to share it with anybody in New Jersey that is interested in talking to lawmakers and, and moving that forward. But I'd like to see people in 50 states pushing through more legislative work, um, especially if the federal law doesn't move forward. But even if it does, there are going to be gaps. So it's, it's something we need to continue to work on. Uh, Gail said, uh, unfortunately, some ed educators have suffered trauma themselves and go immediately into fight modes themselves. Um, some are often unaware of their own responses. Very true. And, and when we talked about kind of the, the classroom trauma cycle, that's exactly the point. The more an educator uses restraint and seclusion, the more apt they are to use it again in the future as well. So that same cycle affects both the children involved and the educators and staff. And that's why you'll see there are some classrooms that this seems to happen infrequently. I know educators that I've talked to in the past that have gone to schools and been told things like, oh yeah, you know, this classroom, you're really gonna have to, you know, be restrained, secluding kids. And I've met educators that are like, no, 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 that's not how I do things. And people are like, no, no, you don't understand. You're gonna have to do it here. And yet that educator will work in the way that they work with kids successfully and not need to use it. So, you know, we, we often see that people form this belief and then it becomes a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that if you believe you're going to need it, that you do need it. Um, so, you know, great, great point, Gail. Um, let's see. <sighs> All right. So, uh, Maria, you asked about specific research and what I would invite you to do is send me an email and I can send you some things. There's a lot of research out there related to uh, related to trauma and the impact that it can have. Um, so if you want to send me an email and again, that's Guy Stevens at nseclusion.com, uh, I can see if I can provide you with something. Um, yeah, absolutely. But but, you know, I mean, it's it's the same impact that that um, I'd say that that any kind of violence might have in terms of the effects that it would have on people. But um, we can point you in the direction of some research that might be helpful. Um, here's another uh, comment here. My son's seclusion was not even reported to his principal. Uh, Idaho is terrible. Um, yeah, and, and that kind of thing can happen as well. Uh, let's see, in Massachusetts, they have to report, but they do not always report correctly. Uh, not much happens when the district does not report correctly. Uh, we have many padded rooms. If the districts have them, they will use them. It is very sad and scary. Um, that's a really great point. If they have them, they will use them. Uh, when I began to fight this locally in our school districts, my superintendent kind of famously said, and I actually ended up putting in a big board to, to take to a meeting, but he said, you know, where I came from, we didn't have these kind of spaces. And, uh, you know, if you don't have these kind of spaces, you don't need them, <laughs> um, which is absolutely true. If you, if you build them, uh, you know, if you build in, and again, some of these are, are padded rooms that are there for the safety of the kids. Some of these are plywood rooms. Some of them are old closets. Um, you know, what these look like very considerably. Um, but again, here at the Alliance, we don't think there's ever an appropriate reason to force a child into a seclusion room against their will and, and hold the door shut. Uh, I don't think that seclusion should ever be an option. Um, you know, restraint. Um, restraint, if ever needed, should be exceedingly rare. If, if a child really was in a safety, a true life or death safety issue, they were going to uh, jump in front of a bus or they had a weapon with the intent of, of using it, um, those are some of the very rare instances I can ever imagine needing to physically restrain a child, in which case I'd want you to do whatever you needed to, to preserve the child's life. But most of the restraint seclusion that happens, happens for noncompliance, disrespect, minor behaviors, um, power struggles, um, staff that are 
perhaps inappropriately trained. It doesn't mean they don't have good intentions, but they in, in, unintentionally are escalating the behavior rather than de-escalating the behavior. So there's a lot of reasons these things can happen. And, um, you know, we, we want to move away from that. All right. Uh, a couple more comments here, and I haven't had a chance to go back to the others. Exactly. Um, we need to demand that schools get rid of them and never build them. I agree with you completely. Uh, we should not have these kinds of rooms. A lot of other good comments here. Um, Gail Quigley said, Eric uh, Rosin has some amazing research as well. Um, let's see. Um, right, right. Yeah. Another, another good comment here. Uh, note about asking kids for their input, though. Don't assume they can always understand their own behavior. Don't pressure them or blame them if they don't have an answer. Absolutely. It's true. Um, and one of the things I love about the collaborative proactive solutions approach is um, there are really good tools for helping you to drill down and understand the things that might be getting in a child's way. Um, my son, when he was very young, I remember him saying, and this was, you know, you'd ask him, well, you know, kind of understand the why. And he'd be like, my brain made me do it. Um, and, and, you know, that always stuck with me, but um, you know, it, it, we even have a difficult time sometimes understanding why we might've done things, but when it comes to responses that might be coming from our, our, you know, survival instincts, I don't think we always have a good understanding of, of the why there. Uh, let's see. I've got a couple of things here. Um, I'm going to bring up a comment from Sandra. Um, our assistant superintendent of student services told me seclusion slash restraint was therapeutic. Uh, uh, to which I replied, if it is therapeutic, we should be celebrating it as a service to families. Uh, it appears to me, uh, there is shame involved in the use of uh, this practice, which might be why schools hide this practice from the community. Um, you know, anytime I hear things like therapeutic, there was a school in Illinois who had uh, written in a letter to the editor of the Chicago Tribune stating that uh, prone restraint was safe and therapeutic. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I wrote my own letter to, to debunk that. It was absolutely untrue. But people often do bring in these ideas. And um, uh, it amazes me. Sandra is an amazing advocate down in uh, the Carolinas and doing some really great work. So keep up what you're doing. Uh, I know you're doing some fantastic things. Uh, let's see. Um, okay. How do we make sure that, uh, kids have a safe place to self-isolate when they need to, without having spaces that can be used for seclusion? You know, that's a great point. Um, and you know, the, the, the issue there is that they are often, um, they are often, you're often led to believe they're one in the same. So when I toured my son's school that he was last restrained and secluded in, uh, they showed us this room and I think they called it the calm room. Uh, and then we were told that students would go in there if they needed to take a break or, you know, you know, just needed a quiet place. Um, and even after my son was secluded in that room, so forced in that room uh, against his will and had the door held shut, uh, we were told, well, well, some kids choose to go there. Now, I had a problem with that because to me, it's hard to imagine that any child that were to, were to witness another child being drugged to that room against their will, kicking and screaming, and then forced in the room and held, have the door held shut, would choose to go to a space like that. Um, it's hard for me to imagine. But, you know, again, the, the, the issue here is that if you build it as a seclusion room, it may be used for seclusion. 
you know, I think there are a lot of better alternatives. Uh, and I think having spaces that can be used, for instance, a true sensory room, truly. And, and my son had one at one point with a, a fantastic teacher who had set up a little room that had a, a small trampoline and different things that kids could do. Uh, and the kids could choose to go there um, on their own if they needed a break. I think that's absolutely fine. But, you know, if the um, intent of the room is isolation or seclusion uh, by the staff, uh, that's problematic. So, you know, I think that you may find that there are spaces and, and I've seen people do it like a, a calm corner or a quiet area where there are areas that a child can go, but it's the intent that turns it from, um, you know, a place where a child might take a self-directed break to a place where a child might be traumatized. Uh, let's see here. Um, Doe said we had 448 restraints on nine elementary students and not report to state. Wow. Um, so you're saying this 448 restraints happened to nine students. Um, that's even more troubling because what that tells us is each of those students was restrained many times. Um, and if you look at all the guidance that's out there um, and, and the uh, Office of Civil Rights put out specific guidance to this in that Dear Colleague letter says, if you're doing this repeatedly for the same child, um, you know, at that point, it's no longer crisis management. It's a planned intervention. So if this is a planned intervention, you are clearly violating the civil rights of that child. You know, if if restraint were something, again, that only happened under these very extreme situations, it would be exceedingly rare. But if you're doing it hundreds of times or, you know, tens of times to a student, it, in my opinion, is a planned intervention. And, and that's problematic. We've found that um, sometimes uh, schools or school districts would put it in a child's uh, IEP or um, uh, BIP, their behavior intervention plan. And again, that to me is a planned intervention. We found that children that had it in a BIP or IEP are more likely to be restrained and or secluded. So once you begin to plan it, it's no longer crisis management. And, and clearly, um, you know, what would you do about that? Well, you know, you have different recourses. You can file a state complaint if it's a student that is covered under IDEA. You can file a Office of Civil Rights complaint through the Department of Education. The Department of Justice also has an Office of Civil Rights and you can, can file a complaint there as well. Um, some people follow through with legal action. Um, so there's a number of things that you can potentially do in these situations. But yeah, uh, looking at those numbers, that's really, really troubling. Um, all right, what else do we have here? Um, yeah, and Dawn, I think you're talking about have it written in their IP or BIP. Uh, I assume you're talking about like a place for them to take a break if they need it, kind of specifying what their needs might be. Okay, so I'll give one more minute to see if there's any other final questions or comments, and then I'll wrap up because this has been, uh, it looks like we've been going for um, a little over an hour and a half, and I want to wrap this up. This will be available, as I said, uh, on uh, YouTube and on Facebook and also as an audio podcast. Uh, I know I just kind of threw, you know, put this together pretty quickly, um, but this is a presentation I've, I've done similar ones for, for other audience. And I thought, well, gee, I've not done this really for our Alliance audience. And I thought it would be beneficial to folks. My hope is that it can be shared with, with others in your community um, or within your district um, to um, help kind of spread the idea that we can do better. Um, let's see, I have a comment here. Do you know if these rooms have to be inspected? That would be state law. So there's no, again, there's no federal law that oversees it. Um, and uh, our friend Sandra, who commented early, could probably tell you a little something about uh, inspections, um, that even if there are requirements, that doesn't mean that they're happening. Um, all right. Oh, Maggie. Uh, Maggie said, I was secluded and restrained for 10 years. Um, is that normal? 
Oh gosh, Maggie, I'm really sorry to, to hear that was your experience. Um, you know, again, the, the whole idea behind restraint and seclusion is that it should be for crisis management. And, you know, if you're having frequent crisis management, um, you know, the when I see, for instance, a child that's being restrained and secluded, what I most often really see is a person that is not having their needs well met. So when someone's needs are not being well met, then situations might escalate. But, you know, we really need to get to what's the heart of the issue and how can we better you know, how can we better support you, Maggie, and, and making sure because each time that was done, there was there was trauma to you and and risk to you. So I'm, I'm sorry that that happened. Certainly, that's not something that we want to see happening to, to anyone. All right. And just some final comments here. Uh, thank you, Nicole um, and Dawn. Um, good. I'm, I'm hearing people that say they're going to they're going to share it. Uh, really appreciate everybody uh, coming out on short notice on a Sunday. Uh, to spend a little time with me today. Um, I thought that this might be helpful to folks. And, um, you know, we're all in this together. So if there's anything we can do as the Alliance to help in situations that you're going through uh, regarding restraint seclusion, uh, I know many of you I've, I've talked to over the last couple of years, always willing to do things that we can to help out. Um, simply put, we, we've got to do better um, for our kids. And, um, oh gosh, I just saw another comment here from, from Barbara, my son's bus driver and aide were using a five gallon bucket and holding it over his head went on for eight months daily. Um, wow. Wow. Uh, unbelievable. Some of the things that have uh, happened to kids. Um, but we've got to move people away from, from doing these things. We've got to trauma is a lifetime and, um, you know, unfortunately, the things that happen to kids, um, you know, very early on just have really significant impacts. So thank you all uh, that are out here watching and, and wanting to do better. If there are any things we can do to help out, let me know. And I'll remind you that we have another presentation coming up on Thursday. We're going to be talking to a couple of uh, folks on the, uh, let's see, um, uh, regarding the trauma. I'm going to get it wrong here. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to get it wrong, but we're, we're going to have another great talk about trauma and uh, groups that are trying to end trauma. So thank you so much. And we will see you again soon.